things are uh, a lot of things are happening right now. Um, a lot of families got some different things going on. So Joey's brother is getting married. That's where the Dixons are. And if you don't know Joey's brother, this is a big deal. Okay, that that a lady has said I will. They're wherever they're yeah they're they're doing the all the all the things that go around the time around the wedding and all that fun stuff. So so. Uh, so some neat stuff there. That's what that's what they're doing. Austin Hammers has a birthday today. Happy birthday to you, buddy. <laughs> and uh, anyway, Sarah, hey, Austin, you need to know Sarah's really, really helpful in that every time somebody has a birthday, you know, she's very quick to text it to me. They got a birthday. They got a birthday. They want to make sure that I don't miss their birthday. I'm like, well, have you told them happy birthday? You know, so... You know, why is it on me? You know, so remind me of that about an hour after my wife says so she's quicker than Facebook. So love you, man. Thankful for you and thankful, thankful for, for Eleanor and for the family and for, you know, God bringing you out this way. So uh, look forward to look forward to what's in the future for all of that. So anywho, well, I have a um, don't really have announcements for you today, so we won't spend time with that. But I do want to get right into our call to worship. I want to read for you a psalm, Psalm 24. We sing a song called King of Glory by Third Day from time to time, and this is kind of taken from this text, Psalm 24. But I want to read it to you. I found it encouraging in many ways, encouraging for us where we are in our life right now, but encouraging for, uh, for where I am in teaching the sermon today. So listen to Psalm 24, these 10 verses. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, and the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors. The King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Let's pray. Christ, we do celebrate you today as the King of glory. We celebrate the fact that you have created and sustained all things. Lord, that you are mighty and that you are fierce in battle. That you are a good king. That you are a sovereign king. That you are the lion from the tribe of Judah, but you are also the lamb who was slain. The lamb who was led silently before its shearers. So, Lord, you are both. You are fierce. You are ferocious. You are strong. You are mighty. And, God, it is a dreadful thing for anyone to fall into your hands. But at the same time, you are gentle and meek and merciful and kind. And, Father, I pray that in our worship today, we would not be trapped into one dimension of who you are, but we would consider all these truths that rightly represent you that we might consider all your attributes and your excellencies as we worship today. 
Father, help us to focus, even though we've got kids by our feet, by our side, in our arms, wanting our attention, eating crayons, whatever it is, I pray that we can, in that moment, still be able to connect with you, still be able to recognize truth, whether it's from the songs that we're singing and offering to you, or whether it's sitting under your word as you reveal truth to us that we can apply to our life and be changed. We ask that you would inhabit the praises of your people today. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together.
seated. Would the kids come up? All right. Got a little bit smaller group than normal. And there's a reason for that. What is that reason? It's a big thing happened this past week for a lot of you, I think, right? What happened this past week? You got out of school. Is that exciting? Yeah. Is it, is it exciting for mommy and daddy? No. Maybe not quite so much as it is the teachers. But because school's out, guess what that means? Vacation. Yeah. Did I tell mommy and daddy that you don't want to go on vacation? No. No? You'll, you'll still go with them? Okay. It's summer. It's summer. Yeah, you get a vacation, which means you don't have to go to class, but it also means that you get to go cool places, right? Yeah. Where are you going? I'm just going to the park. A park? So we get to do things like park? Ethan, where, where are you going? You're going to the beach, that's right. Where are you going? To a beach, probably? Yeah, but going to, going to beach is a pretty common thing in the summertime, isn't it? Where you going? Okay, so it sounds like... So, so it sounds like a lot of you are going to be going to very special places this summer, right? And the beach is a really fun one. But we just enjoy getting to be out of school, and we get to do cool activities at home, which is kind of what we're going to talk about today, because I've heard rumblings from some of you, not looking at you, Marley, but I really am, um, about plays. Who knows what a play is? Play, like a performance. You and your neighbor are, have been talking about doing a play. And I don't know where y'all are in that journey. Huh? Yeah. What's your play going to be about? What? It sounds like we need some work on this play. Princess and the Bride? So, so what do plays have in them? Plays have characters, right? Okay. Have any of you ever been in a play at school? No? Christmas play? Okay, so we've got maybe three or four. Pretty much makes you experts, I guess. All right, so what else do we have in a play besides characters? We have a plot or a, a story, right, that somebody wrote and they're trying to tell us. That's what the play is about, okay? How is a play divided up? Does anybody know? When, when you have a play, there are, there are usually certain sections, okay, scenes, but there's another word for it, um, they're divided up into different parts that, that kind of tell us different sections of the story. Mm, they come in a series, but that's not necessarily the term for them. Nobody has any idea of what different parts of a play are called? Adults, can you help them out? What was it? Acts. Yeah. A-C-T-S. Acts. You have acts in a play, okay? And today, what we're going to talk about is God's story, or we could call it a play, in scripture that he gives to us in several different sections or acts. We're going to call them acts. And there are three acts 
that we're going to talk about today in God's narrative for the salvation of men from their sins, okay? So Mr. Allen and Mr. Austin have talked to us the past few weeks about what it means to be a sinner. How many of us are sinners? Yeah. What, it, what does it mean? What does it mean that we're a sinner? Somebody help me out here. Um, let me let me see. Ethan, you look like a likely candidate. <laughs> what does it mean to be a sinner? Yeah, it means that we did something wrong. Okay, against who, Ethan? Against God. That's right. Marley, you want to add to that? Okay, all of those, if we disobey any of the Ten Commandments, any of those would be a sin, right? Jack? When you do do something bad, like something that Mommy and Daddy maybe told you not to? Yeah, because Mommy and Daddy try to help you not do bad things, right? Okay, so in the first act, everybody hold up one finger. First act, Katie, first act. Everybody's got at least one finger, right? All right, in the first act... Adam sinned in the Garden of Eden. Do you remember when, I think that was Mr. Austin, talked about that? Adam sinning in the Garden of Eden. And because Adam sinned, what does that mean for everybody else who has come after Adam? Yeah, that, that we all have inherited. The Bible says we all have a sin nature because Adam sinned. All of us are sinners too. So let's talk about sin for a minute. Sin, listen up. You gave me a good definition, Ethan, and some others helped. But we're going to talk about that a little bit more. Sin is me. Everybody point to me. Okay, because we all do this, right? Sin is me, because I'm a sinner, missing God's mark of perfection. How many of you know, well, let's do this. How many of you think you could walk outside? Do you know what a target is? A target looks like what? we got a... We got a term for it, though. It's got circles with something right in the center of it. What is it? A target? Yeah, but there's a specific term for the thing right in the middle of that target. A bullseye, yeah. So sin is like this. If God has a target and God holds a target up for us, and in the center there's a bullseye, and if we don't hit that bullseye perfectly every time with our actions, guess what we're doing? We're sinning. We are missing God's mark of perfection. You don't think so? If we walk outside and I hand you a bow and arrow, do you think you could hit the bullseye every time with an arrow? Do you even know what a bow and arrow are? (laughs) You're probably out of luck. All right, so look, any of us, I could walk outside right now with a target and a bow and arrow, and I wouldn't even hit the target, okay? If I had 100 years. Okay, but none of us can perfectly hit God's perfect bullseye of acting and doing and behaving perfectly all the time. And that's what makes us sinners. We miss God's mark of perfection. Now, in the Garden of Eden, let's not. In the Garden of Eden, up here, guys. There's stuff going on behind you, but pay attention up here, okay? In the Garden of Eden, how did Adam miss God's mark? How did Adam sin against God? Exactly right. God had told him not to do something, and what did Adam do? He did it. Guess what? Do we all do the same thing? Yeah. Yeah. 
When I was your age, I disobeyed my mommy and daddy too. Huh? <laughs> Lots of bad things. When mommy and daddy told me not to eat certain things, guess who could sneak around pretty good and eat those certain things? Yeah. Okay. When you were, when I was supposed to clean my room or make my bed, I didn't like making my bed. So you know what? Sometimes mommy and daddy had to tell me once or more than once. If they had to tell me more than once, what did that mean? Yeah, I was disobeying, so I was going to get wallet. All right. But listen, so, so when we sin, we're guilty, right? All of us sin. We're all guilty. And that's because of Adam. So in the first act, everybody hold up that one finger again. So in the first act, we are all declared guilty of sin through Adam. That sounds pretty sad, doesn't it? Because we talked about Mr. Allen, Mr. Austin talked to us about the fact that because we're guilty, we deserve judgment for our sin. We deserve a punishment. How many of you, when you disobey, mommy or daddy tells you there's going to have to be a punishment? Yeah. Do we like punishment? Mm -mm. But because of the first act that we just talked about, we are all deserving of punishment because we're all guilty of sin. But, yeah. That's a pretty sad punishment, isn't it? Yeah. That's pretty sad. Okay. Listen, but mommy and daddy usually know what we like, right? And they know how to make a punishment hurt. Why did they do that? To make you learn so that you don't do it again. So in the first act, we're all declared guilty, and that's a very sad thing because we're all deserving of punishment. But the second act, everybody hold up two fingers now onto the second act. The second act is a is a happy act, okay? It's good news, right? The second act is God's plan for salvation from sin. That means that there's a way, listen, that there's a way that I don't have to experience the punishment that I deserve for my sin, okay? And this way that God provided or planned for required a sacrifice or a substitute. What is a sacrifice? You know what a sacrifice is in the Bible specifically? You forgot, Ethan? Okay, that is one way that we sacrifice. You you give of your time, maybe, or you give of your resources to to do something for someone else. Okay, yeah. In the Bible, in the Bible. We learned about how the fact that God provided a sacrifice or a substitute for Adam, okay, when they needed a covering in the garden, what did God do? Huh? He, he killed a what? A lamb. He made, he made a covering for them by sacrificing something. And throughout the whole Old Testament, everybody knows what the Old Testament is, right? The, the, the first section of the Bible, okay? There had to be sacrifices made as a covering for the sins of the people of Israel, right? But in this second act, we learn about a sacrifice that is far greater than any of those sacrifices in the Old Testament, right? Let's talk about this for a minute. If you stole something from somebody, or if you disobeyed mommy or daddy, or if you lied to them, would you want to be punished? No. Jack, would you want to be punished? No. No. Guess what? I wouldn't either. But do you deserve to be punished? Yeah. yeah. What's the difference? Okay, wanting, wanting to be punished is different from deserving to be punished, right? 
deserving something is something that you earned by your actions. It's something that you, you did where you disobeyed or you broke the, the commandments, like Marley said, God's commandments. Okay? Deserving something is earning a reward, and that reward is a punishment. Okay? That's not a very fun reward. Right? But we deserve it. How would you feel, though, if you were supposed to be punished and someone else came up, maybe a brother or sister, came up and said, you know what? You deserve to be punished, but instead of you being punished, I'll take your punishment for you. How many of you have ever done that for a brother or sister? Huh? We don't have any sacrifices in here? Okay. Guess what? I didn't do that for my brothers or sisters either, okay? Huh? I was showing I was showing that you need to raise your hand if you'd ever done that, okay? But but in that situation, is someone still being punished for your sin or your disobedience? Who's being punished in that case? Yeah, your brother or sister. Not you, though, right? All right, so the good news of the second act is that Jesus was willing to come to earth as a little baby. How many of you like babies? Okay. Everybody, yeah, everybody likes babies. All right, so Jesus came to earth as a baby, but he didn't stay a baby, did he? What did he do? He grew up. Just like all of you are growing, okay? Y'all are growing so big, and it's crazy how fast you grow. Same happened to Jesus. He grew up as a little boy, and then a big boy, and then a teenager, and then a young man. But Jesus did a little differently than us because Jesus never sinned, all right? We all sin, don't we? Yeah? yeah. Jesus didn't do that. He lived, and he lived perfectly, all right? And Jesus came to earth. He lived perfectly, and he was willing to die on the cross and be the sacrifice and pay the penalty for my sin, right? We're all sinners. Is it just me that's a sinner in this room? No. no we're all sinners. All right. He died to pay the penalty for my sins, and he could do that because he was perfect. How many of you... Listen up. How many of you are perfect? Jack, you're perfect now? Or do you sin sometimes? You just told us a little while ago that you sin. Right? None of us, none of us are without sin. We all sin. Therefore, we can't be the sacrifice for someone else. You can't go to God, Emma, and say that I will be the sacrifice or the substitute for Ethan because I love him as my brother. Okay? Marley? You can't do that for your brothers either, okay? Why not? Can you be a perfect sacrifice? No. Only Jesus could do that because he was the only one that was perfect. In 1 Peter chapter 2, we, we learn that Jesus, listen, Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness because it's by his wounds that you have been healed. Jesus died on the cross and bore our sins, Ethan, why? Why did Jesus die on the cross and pay the penalty for sin? Yeah, because he loved us. So in the second act, we, we've learned that God charges our sin to Jesus as a worthy sacrifice to bear the punishment for our sins. So Katie, Katie, who deserves to be punished for their sins? Yeah, me. You. You. But, listen, what way did God provide as a way, listen, for someone else to be the substitute for our sins. That was through who? Through who? Through Jesus, yeah, his son. So that's act two. How many acts have we done? What was the first one? 
that we're all sinners. We're all guilty of sin because of Adam. Number two, who is the substitute that can pay for our sins? Yeah. So number three, listen, number three is the best news of all. That tells us that God gives us Christ's perfect righteousness when we turn from our sin, listen, in repentance and faith. Mr. Austin used those two words last week, and he taught, and he taught us that by showing us what? A quarter. Yeah. Remember how we talked about what's on the back of the quarter? We got bogged down in that a little bit. All right, listen. So repentance and faith, two sides of the same coin. When we turn to God in repentance and faith, that God tells us, listen, Jack, are you listening? That God tells us when we do those things that God gives us Christ's perfect righteousness. All right? Do we deserve Christ's perfect righteousness? Uh-uh. <laughs> I think that was a grunt, not a yeah. Okay, we don't deserve Christ's perfect righteousness. The Bible tells us, though, listen, listen, that we are presented with a gift. All right? How many of you like gifts? It's somebody's birthday party today. We don't know who, but it's somebody's birthday party today. And she's going to be given a lot of gifts. What if she was given a gift and she said, mm, mm-mm, I don't want to open that gift? What would happen? The world would probably fall apart. But besides that, besides that, why, why would we ever refuse a gift? Is there a good reason for refusing a gift? No. Okay, but listen, so, so in our scenario from earlier, if someone said, Ethan, that I will take your punishment, all right, and you said, you know what, that's really kind of you, sister, but I will accept my punishment anyways, is that what you would do? No, but you know what, sometimes, listen, listen, sometimes we are stubborn, or sometimes people around us are stubborn. And when God's gift of salvation is offered to them, you know what they say? Listen. You know what they say? Sometimes they're stubborn and they refuse God's gift of salvation. So in that scenario, listen, if they refuse God's gift of salvation, who, who receives the punishment for that, for their sin? Because they still deserve sin, right? Or I'm sorry, they still deserve punishment for their sin. Ethan, would you still deserve punishment for your sin? Yeah. And if you turned away Emma's sacrifice on your behalf who would be punished yeah because someone always has to be punished for our sin there has to be there has to be a punishment and the bible tells us that we receive christ's righteousness listen up this is the most important part we're almost done the bible tells us that that we receive christ's righteousness when we turn away from our sin and turn to christ in repentance and faith, two sides of the same coin. Do we deserve that? Do we deserve God's goodness? Do we deserve his grace? We don't. But listen, listen. When God looks at us, if we have trusted Christ in faith, guess what? Does he still see our sin? Mm -mm. When he looks at us, instead of seeing my sin that deserves punishment, you know what he sees? He sees Christ's righteousness that was given to me, not because of something I did to earn it, because guess what? I could, I could go outside and I could shoot for 100 years at a target, and I could never be perfect every time. Okay? All of us in here could work all of our lives trying to be perfect. Could we ever do that? 
No. And because if we sin just one time, we're guilty, guess what? We deserve punishment. And yet the good news of the gospel is that when we turn to Christ in repentance and faith, that God looks at me, he doesn't see my sin anymore. What does he see? He sees, he sees Christ's righteousness. Yeah. So instead of sin, he sees righteousness. Not my righteousness, but Christ's righteousness. So that's the third act. All right, so the first act was what? We're all guilty of what? Yeah, we're all guilty because we sin, so we deserve a punishment. All right, the second act is that God chose to send a sacrifice for the guilt of our sin. Who was that? Jesus. And the third act is that when we trust God in repentance and faith, we are viewed as having no guilt for our sin because Jesus, who was sacrificed for our sin, has received the punishment of our sin. Okay? Listen. You guys have done a great job. That's, that's a pretty hard thing to understand. Some of you understand it a little better than others. Some of you will learn it better in the coming years. But the important thing to remember is that we are guilty. We deserve punishment. Christ is a worthy sacrifice for our punishment. And if we trust what Christ did on our behalf, guess what? God looks at us and he doesn't see our sin anymore. He sees Christ's righteousness instead. All right, let's pray, and then you guys can go back to your seats. Father, we do thank you today for Christ's righteousness on our behalf. We don't deserve it. We can't earn it. There's nothing we could do that would make us lovable in your sight, and yet you chose to love us anyways. And you gave us, you offered us the gift of salvation, not because of anything good in us, but because you wanted to do it. And thank you that when you save us, that you hold us fast. As we sang about a minute ago, that, that we can never lose our salvation. We can never do something that would uh, cause us to fall away from you. But that you save us and you hold us fast. Thank you that when you look at us, you see Christ's righteousness instead of our own sinful failures. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. My three and four-year-olds are dismissed. Stand with us just one more time. And he that first made me
Father, mercies, I pray that our lives would reflect the mercy that you've shown us. And Father, we thank you for the presence that we feel today as we move to the preaching portion of our worship. I pray that our hearts will be open. I pray that our minds will be clear. I pray we could focus on uh, the work that Alan has prepared for us to receive. And Father, I lift up our uh, missionaries. Uh, both those here and those abroad that we support. I pray, Father, that you would guide them, that you would give them opportunities to share the gospel. And I ask all this in the name of your Son. Amen. And you can open your copy up to the book of Habakkuk. To the book of Habakkuk. 
you can dial me back a good bit. I'm a bit louder than Austin Jowers. <laughs> All right, so the book of Habakkuk. Well, I'm not turned there myself, so. Habakkuk chapter, Austin finished with verse 11. We're going to pick up in verse 12. We're going to work our way through chapter 2, verse 1. So Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 12 is where we will begin. Jonah, Micah, Nahum. Okay, here we go. So let me read this text for you, and we'll set everything up. So here we are. Well, let's just back up a little bit. For those of you that didn't hear it or didn't catch it last week because you were here, weren't here, whatever, here's kind of how we're going to take off. Oh, Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear, or cry to you violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous so justice goes forth perverted. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and, wonder and be astounded for I am doing a work in your days. You would not believe if I told you. So God is now responding as Austin taught us last week to Habakkuk. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation. So again, you need to get in your frame of mind that Babylon, all right, so I'll say Babylon a lot. That's the Chaldeans here. Babylon is a hasty, perverted nation. Bad news. Bad news. So he's raising up. The Chaldeans, he's raising up Babylon, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come from violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. I mean, these folks aren't intimidated by anyone. They are the ones who people are intimidated by. They don't care. And so now, Judah is in the crosshairs of this wicked and perverse and hasty nation. They scoff at kings. They laugh at rulers. They laugh at every fortress. They come up, they, they pile up earth, and they take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. I mean, this is a vile, vile people. And Habakkuk has a problem right now. Habakkuk, who has a robust theology, has a problem, and he's taking issue with God. And that's what we read here. The way that Habakkuk is divided up is you have Habakkuk petitioning God, Habakkuk's giving his complaint he's questioning God we'll get into that a little bit and then God responds and again Habakkuk says okay you've responded once let me let me let me throw out a few more things to you and then God responds again and then the 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 book of Habakkuk concludes with a prayer so it's pretty easily broken up a petition a response a petition a response and then a 
prayer. So then we move to verse 12. Are you not from everlasting? Oh, Lord, my God, my Holy One, we shall not die. Oh, Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You get the sense that Habakkuk's become very audacious in the presence of God. I mean, who talks to God like this? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook, he being Babylon. He drags them out with this net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net, and he makes offerings to his danger, or sorry, to his dragnet, for by them he lives in luxury. And his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? And we'll stop right there for a minute. So when you're dealing with a prophet, there's a few rules that you have to understand when dealing with a prophet. First of all, something you need to tuck away in your mind is that any time a prophet prophesies and it does not come to fruition, very clearly they are not a true prophet. They are a false prophet. That is one of the many reasons that we wholeheartedly reject Mormonism and we reject Jehovah's Witness and so many others who have had self-proclaimed or others proclaimed prophets who have said such and such is going to happen by divine revelation, such and such is going to take place because God has spoken and over and over again it does not happen. And they worm their way out of accountability to making these claims. So a prophet has to really be worth his salt to be taken seriously. A prophet is human just like you and I. A prophet isn't, they're special in the sense that God appoints them and God gives them a word and God makes revelation through them. But they are just like you and I. Just like Abraham was selected to do the task that he was selected as a pagan man, it's it's. It's God, it's the Godhead that gives emphasis and gives anything special or noteworthy to the human. We're just dirt, you understand that. We have value, dignity, and worth. I get all of that. I'm not saying we're fizz or or all this kind of stuff. I'm not adopting an atheistic worldview. I'm saying we are created from dirt, right? God is eternal. God is God. We are man. And God appoints those that he wants to do whatever it is that he wants to do. In this case as well as many others, it's Habakkuk. We don't know a whole lot about Habakkuk. I won't go into a lot of the setup because Austin did a lot of that. But I do want you to understand something. A prophet is responsible directly and indirectly for two things. One, a prophet reveals, makes revelation or reveals the word of God, reveals the word of the Lord. What God has instructed them, and especially here in the Old Testament, everything seems to be with dealing with Israel. Israel's playing the role of the harlot. They're pursuing they're pursuing, as, a, as one, of, one of my favorite songs says, lovers far less wild. They're, they're playing the role of the harlot. They're committing adultery upon adultery upon adultery spiritually. And God is fed up. Make no mistake about this. This is not a passive deity. This is not someone that we think, okay, well, he's so merciful and loving. You know, he's going to let this go. God hates this. You understand? God hates this, and he must. 
if you serve a God that can stomach sin, then you serve a false God. Because the God of the Bible, by nature, I mean, Habakkuk says it, you who have purer eyes than to look upon sin. He's saying it right there. This is a part of what the prophet does. He makes revelation of things to come or what needs to be said. But I would say indirectly, the prophet is revealing the nature and the character of the Lord. This is what God is doing. God has a, has a goal. God has something he's working and he's doing. He has a plan. But a part of that is revealing himself. He pulls back the curtain over and over again so that we can know more of his character. We can know more of who he is. And that's one of the great things about studying through the Old Testament. Walking through those narratives, what you see over and over and over again, the way God acts is indicative of who God is. So we look at something that's difficult. We're like, wow, what in, what in the world? What is that telling me about God? You know, if we become one-dimensional, we're like, well, God is so sweet and loving and merciful and patient and kind and all these good things that we like to put on T-shirts, but we, we really become one-dimensional. But what do you do when God takes Israel and they're rebelling and they're in the wilderness and he causes a chasm to open up in the ground and this whole rebellion from, from Moses' kin is swallowed up by the ground? God did that. Because he takes this stuff very, very seriously. And you have to understand that there's not one sin, as Nathan talked about, there's not one sin that does not go undealt with. Not one. Not one sin in the span of time from humanity, from the, from the beginning of humanity to now, that is not dealt with. And I would say in the future, but that's a little more nuanced. Everything gets dealt with. And what do we draw from that? The character of God, that these things are very serious. And so Habakkuk is, is, it's interesting, this book of Habakkuk, because it's not, we don't have recorded him going to Judah, because that's who he's concerned with, who God is focusing on right now. We don't have this, 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 this time that he's going like Jonah supposed to go to Nineveh or, or whatever. This is an exchange between Habakkuk and Yahweh. And that's why I have really come to love this book. I mean, of course, I've read this book before, but after, now that I've spent some time studying it, reading it over and over again, I've really become fond of Habakkuk because, again, Habakkuk is every man. I mean, who in here does not, from time to time, raise questions and say, God, but why this? Why aren't you doing this? We believe in his character. We believe in his nature. We believe that he's good. But God, show me how this is good. Show me how these things continue, and yet you're, you're good. You know, I mean, are, these are probably questions that we have sometimes. We believe that he's good. We believe that he's true. We believe that he's faithful. But we're like, I'm weak. Show me. Help me to understand further. Help me to reconcile these things. And this is where Habakkuk is. He has a strong theology. As a matter of fact, it keeps him grounded throughout this whole exchange between he and Yahweh. But it is very clear that he still has these struggles, so he petitions God, and God interacts with him, which is really neat. So a prophet reveals the word of God and reveals the nature of God. And there are two important applications to consider here as we look at this text, and I'll come back and forth through both. How does this text apply in its immediate context, and how does this text apply in our context? You might call them direct and indirect application. You know, the Holy Spirit has an intended audience, the immediate audience. 
is obviously Habakkuk, is obviously Yahweh. They're exchanging. Habakkuk is learning from God. Habakkuk is waiting. Habakkuk is hearing from God. We're seeing this happen between the two of them, and we're learning. But we are also a part of the application. We are also a part of this intended audience. That's why God's word is eternal, so that for all time, it can continue to shape us as humans on this side of heaven. And I think truth will still shape us uh, once we get to heaven as well, by the way. Why? Because we don't become gods. We don't become infinite. We don't become uh, omniscient. I think we still grow in stature before the Lord, and we learn more. Therefore, we can worship more. But that's my take. So there's an interesting book here. It's unique because this is really the only prophet that you see this happening exclusively. You see prophets dialoguing with God, God responding, them giving a message. But this is unique. This is a very unique thing. So it begs the question. So this is in reference to Judah. Habakkuk is very concerned about what's happening to Judah. And we'll hear this right now in verses 12 through 17. So follow me, follow with me here. He says, Do you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. Nope, I've already read all that. Sorry, I thought I hadn't read it. So you take that and you understand that he's concerned with them, he's worried about them, but it begs the question, why is Habakkuk, what is it, what, what has Judah done that's so bad? Right? I mean, if you're like me, you're like, okay, I know that God's really upset <laughs> and, and, and condemnation, judgment is, is on their head and Habakkuk is... is Although he gets it, he's still trying to reconcile, but, but why? You know, I mean, of all people, why, God, why don't you just send a, a pillar of, why don't you just, you know, send like a, a hurricane, or why don't you just send serpents, or, or why don't you do something like you've done before? Why don't you do something like that? Why would you, who is pure and perfect, why would you take Babylon, why would you take the Chaldeans who are filthy, who are perverse, who are hasty, why, why take them who relish in profiting off of the poor treatment of your chosen nation. Habakkuk can't reconcile that in his brain. He's really struggling. God, I know that you're good. He says that you're from everlasting. You're, you're eternal. This is not a, an issue where he's doubting God. And that's important to understand. He's leaning on what he believes to be true, and that is that God is from everlasting He's saying, you're consistent. He's not just speaking of how old God is. God is outside of time, so we don't think of him that way. He's not thinking of how long God has been for eternity. He's talking more about the fact that God is eternally unchanging. And we know this because he says, you're from everlasting, O Lord, my holy one. He says, we shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. This idea of rock, again, again connotes that he is unchanging. Unchanging in what? He's unchanging in his faithfulness. He's unchanging in his expectations. He's unchanging in his standards. He's unchanging in his holiness. He's unchanging in his purity. So there's a few revelations that I see here just in this first little section, verses 12 and 13. Revelation 1 is that God is eternally faithful and unchanging. We approach this text, we're reading it. If you're reading this in the privacy of your own home and you're reading it as a thousand, as thousands of year old, thousands of years old, as 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 historic uh, uh, time, as a, as as you know, historic evidence. 
then yeah, you're seeing this exchange, but then we draw from this. What are we seeing? What is Habakkuk teaching us? What is the Holy Spirit intending for us to draw out of this book? And so that's how we walk through this. And the first thing I see is that God is eternal and God is unchanging. Unchanging in love. Unchanging in justice. Unchanging in holiness. Unchanging in purity. God has always been these things. And Habakkuk realizes this. And what he can't reconcile is that you can't look at these things. You can't be a part of these things. You are pure. You are perfect. You are great. And yet you're taking this filthy generation and you're using them against Israel, which is, by the way, not the only time that God did that. So he's honestly coming to the table and saying, help me understand. And I think it's so helpful because I've been there time and time again. God, help me understand why these things are going on. I know that you're good in all that you do, but Lord, help me reconcile these things in my brain. If God only gives me, hey, this is truth, you just, you just believe it, don't worry about it, fine. But I'm quick to say, help me understand it. Help me understand how it works out. And I just have to trust God to reveal these things to me. So Habakkuk rests on God's immutability, his unchanging, his unchangeableness, and his faithfulness. This text is not, again, revealing Habakkuk's doubt, but rather his trust in the promises of God because God had made a covenant with Israel. That's important for context. He's made this covenant with Israel, and Habakkuk knows this. And if you're not careful, you can hear this language, and you can become more of an annihilationist with regards to Judah. It seems as though he's going to wipe them out, but Habakkuk is leaning on that, saying, no, but you've made this covenant. Surely you can't wipe them out because you've promised this. You've promised this covenant. So, so this nation, this is going to keep going, and we're going to see these things happen over time because that's the promise that you've made. If you wipe them out, if you annihilate them, what does it mean of the covenant of God? It means he is changeable. It means he's not immutable. Maybe it means he can't be trusted. So Habakkuk has a good theology, but he's trying to reconcile the actions of God with the nature of God. And that can be difficult sometimes. You're from everlasting. You are the rock. You're unchanging. We shall not die. Again, leaning on the promise, leaning on that covenant. You're not going to wipe us all out. You're not going to annihilate because there's a promise. And annihilation would <laughs> cut that promise. It would sever that. And worse, and worse, it would be an indictment, as far as what we understand, against God if he doesn't keep his promises. And I understand we can say God can do what he wants. He can do all of these things. But you understand for God to make a promise and for God to deny himself the covenant-keeping the, the, the promise-keeping side of his nature, that would be an indictment against God. So he doesn't break those things. I think Revelation 2 is this. First, that God is faithful, but also that God is holy and God is just. Habakkuk, he identifies this. And it's important to understand, this isn't just, hey, let's just take out theology and go through some systematic stuff and learn some terms and let you, you know these terms. This isn't about that. This is contextual because for Habakkuk to understand the way God is working, he does so through the filter or through the lens of God's holiness because God is distinct. God, God doesn't do things the way you and I might do things. God doesn't see things the way that you and I might see things. 
everything that God does is good and with good motives and with pure intentions and for his glory. Not so much with us. So it makes sense that we might arrive to the scene and have this skewed perception of what is good, what is right, what is true. But Habakkuk leans on the holiness of God, keeping him tethered to reality, keeping him anchored to reality. When God does all these things that really don't make sense to him, that's what he clings to. That's what he clings to. God, you're going to do this. You know, the whole net and drag net. You know, they're, 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 J- Judah's helpless. You're going to leave them out in the lurch. and They're just going to be all but destroyed. Well, you're, I don't get it, but you're holy. And even that's good. Whatever you're doing is right. Because I don't see things the way you do. And, that's a, and you don't see things the way I do. Because I'm infinite and I'm, I'm finite and you're infinite. Habakkuk speaking to God. God's justice is rooted in and produced from and through his holiness. There is justice because God is holy. God has to act on all sin because his holiness demands it. And that helps us make sense of everything that we see here. And you would say, but... But Babylon, the Chaldeans, they're much worse. They're much worse than Israel, much worse than Judah. But you have to understand, God's holiness demands that he absolutely hates all sin in every form and fashion. Everything he hates. Babylon will be dealt with just as Judah is being dealt with. Babylon doesn't get off the hook. They don't become you know, the, the newly adopted child that, that, that he loves so very much. They're an instrument. They're not his chosen people. They are a means to an end. You understand that? In God's holiness, he watches the harlotry and the adultery of Israel. He watches the harlotry and the adultery. By the way, we're all in that same camp. He watches that, and he hates it. But those are his people. So when God dispenses justice, you have to understand these things happen with two different motivations. They're all born out of his holiness and dispensed because he is good. But there is a dispensing of justice, judgment, and all of these things on those who are his as a form of discipline and as a form of reproof. But woe to those who suffer under God's judgment when they don't belong to him. Because it is eternal wrath, which is also the byproduct of his eternal holiness. So this gets really weighty really fast. Babylon's in a bad way. Uh, uh, Judah's in a bad way. Habakkuk's in a bad way because he's trying to reconcile these things. He's asking God for clarity. He's asking God for understanding. He's trusting God all the while, but he's still working through this. And I think us as the readers, thousands of years later, I think this has immediate application as we have to change. God doesn't have to go with a plan B and say, you know what, we've done this for a while, I've realized there's a little something better. That's the way we operate, and that's cool, that's good, right? That's how technology works. We have this bit of technology, and then something else will come out to make things easier, faster, better, whatever. Better is subjective, I get that. But not God. Everything he does. All of his actions, all of everything is absolutely perfect. So there's no need for God to change. 
His nature doesn't change. His character doesn't change. And that is what Habakkuk is clinging to. Oh, Lord, you have ordained them, Babylon, as, 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 as judgment, as an instrument of judgment. You, O rock, have established them for reproof. So Babylon has taken this perverse generation, and God has used them as an instrument, as a weapon, and the target is Judah. And Habakkuk is, is beside himself. He trusts God. Again, I have to hammer this. He loves, he loves Judah. This is not a guy that's like, yeah, get him, get him, get him, God, get him. He's grieved over this. God, does it have to be this way? I mean, how long, how long will this merciless destruction take place? And Habakkuk's really struggling with this. I mean, do you and I not ask God sometimes, how long will you allow the murder of the unborn to take place? You're good and you're right and you're just. You can stop it too. Why aren't you doing that? Why can't you stop the merciless killing? And you can, you can put whatever you want in that slot. Just scroll through Facebook for half a swipe. And you can find about ten things to start petitioning God saying, God, why do you tarry? Why can't it stop now? You know, we think that way. We think real time. We feel the emotion. We're like, yeah, that, that lands. Maybe it didn't land for you with a vacuum because there's thousands of years that separate you from this. And like, yeah, it's a, we have a kind of a cold approach with these minor prophets that many or most of us have never read. But then we see the same kind of stuff happens today. And God is able to stop. God is able to do whatever he wants. And you say, but I know you're good, but these things still happen. And why? So Habakkuk has a problem. Oh, Lord, you have ordained that Babylon, that they would be a judgment and a reproof. He says, you who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? He is struggling to reconcile God's nature with God's sovereign decree to use a more wicked nation. We come to him in faith, knowing he's good, Knowing all of these things, saying, God, I trust these things. I don't understand. Give me understanding. And I think that's the right way to approach God. But when the line of questioning is to doubt the ethics, intention, and morality of God, it is sin. Because you are questioning the character and nature of God. So there's a, a slippery slope there. And you have to be very careful. And I think Habakkuk approached God with the purpose of understanding there is a sense in which God cannot act, interact with wickedness. Habakkuk says that. You who have pure eyes and to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallow them up, the man more righteous than he? He's struggling here. God, how, do you, how does this work? You know, we know in Isaiah 59 verse 2 it says that your sins have made a separation between you and God and it has caused God to turn away so that he will not hear. God turns away. So in one sense, we can say God has nothing to do with evil. God has nothing to do with sin. He has nothing to do with wickedness. He doesn't even look at it. And I would say yes and amen to that. But in another sense, as an omniscient being, as an all-seeing being, obviously, he sees wicked. Obviously, 
he knows that it exists. So there's a weird compatibility that's going on there, and Habakkuk is expressing that. You know, you're involved with this because you grabbed them and you've used them as an instrument. You are wielding them against Judah. How do you do that? When you are pure and have pure eyes than to see evil. But Habakkuk is operating through human filters and seeing through human lenses. And it's easy for us to sometimes be stuck in the logic box. Linear black and white thinking doesn't always work with the things of God. I don't know if you've ever tried to share truth with children. They're very concrete thinkers. And you get into abstract thinking when you get into theological things. You're like, what? But God, this, this, and this, because they're very concrete. And sometimes we get stuck in that mode. We're like, but, but what? This feels wrong. This doesn't feel right. How are you doing this? Our basis of what is right, good, and true is God in his character and his actions. Instead of trying to figure out how God is good in what he does, we start with good as the basis of who God is. That's where you start. And let me, let me, let me tell you that. That's you, m- most of you have been born again believers for a long time. And you know that God is good. But if you're like me, sometimes it's not said as your default. You're like, what's going on? And then you have to be reminded, God is good. Oh, yeah, I mean, this stinks, but he's good. Start there, always be ready. That's a part of your defense. It's a part of your apologetic for yourself. When the enemy's arrows are shooting at you, you start, God is good. Start with these basic doctrinal principles, these foundations of the Christian faith. You are from everlasting. You are unchanging. You are holy. You are good. You are pure. You are mighty. Nothing, nothing can thwart your purposes. No one can resist your will. Boom, boom, boom. Make your checkbox. Memorize that stuff. So when the arrows come your way, you can deflect more easily because you're anchored in truth rather than being hit and bombarded with an onslaught of emotions, and then you have to sift through all the junk of emotions to hopefully find truth that will then again ground you. So be careful of those things. And I love this. I would say this is Habakkuk's solution, and I kind of put the cart before the horse, but this is what Habakkuk does. He asks these questions, he has these struggles, but at the end of all things, he trusts the character, nature, and person of God. And notice that God expresses so much patience with Habakkuk. Who in the world are you? And who in the world am I? And who in the world is Habakkuk? To question the Almighty Lord of hosts. I mean, let that settle with you. I, I did this yesterday. I tried to. It sounds weird. Try to really meditate on that. It didn't sound weird, but I don't want to be a new agey guy. But just try to sit there and think. It wasn't like, oh, I'm like that. It was just sitting and just try to let that weigh on me. Not only do we get to approach the Lord of hosts, but sometimes we do so in anger and frustration, questioning what he does. God forbid questioning his ethic, morality, and person. Consider the magnitude of this exchange between Habakkuk, that he's just laying this up out there, confused, frustrated, probably trying to understand, loving Judah, wanting the best, wanting it all to stop, but it's not. What are you doing, God? 
can think of a few others in the scripture who did the very same thing, but Yahweh is patient. Who in this world are any of us to question the Lord of hosts? I mean, who are we? We may be the crown of his creation, but that gives us no right to question the creator. Every superlative ever given to man was first and always God's. Every breath we breathe is dictated by his perfect will. You are you because God is God. We don't even register on the scale when we're placed next to him. You understand that, right? We don't measure on that scale. I've got 41 years in the books, right? I know, uh, you know, I'm, I look like 25. I get it. But I got 41 years in the books. I got 41 years of wisdom because I've made a lot of mistakes. I'm like, don't do that again. That's wisdom, right? I, I now have knowledge, and it's what I do with that knowledge, okay? So I have wisdom, but 41 years. I haven't arrived anywhere. Put me on a scale next to the wisdom of God, and I don't even register on that scale. He's from eternity past. His wisdom isn't accumulative of all the time he's been gaining experience. You understand this. It's not that, oh, God's been around a long time, so trust his wisdom. No. Wisdom is intrinsic to who he is. Again, he hasn't changed. Wisdom hasn't caused him to get smarter and smarter. Experience hasn't caused him to get wiser and wiser. He just always has been. Our wisdom is at best human and the product of a few years on this earth, which really amount to nothing. I mean, what is 41 years compared to an eternity? What is a million years compared to eternity? What if your child, by the way, what if your child, you new folks, you new parents, what if your child comes to you, you love your child like no one else aside from God loves your child. You care for your child like no one else cares for your child. I may love your children, I may love your children, but nothing compares to the way you love your children apart from how God loves people, right? I may care for them, I may want the best for them, but I don't have the connection and the care and the concern like you do because why? They're your kids. God has made you stewards of them. God has given them to you as gifts, and he's placed the expectation on your life. But what happens when your 12-year-old son comes to you and starts challenging your authority? I put my hands in my pockets because my flesh rears up, and I'm like, some kid wants to get punched right in the face. I would not do that to my child, but there's a frustration there. I was like, who are you to question me? I'm your dad. God put me here. I will spank you until you're 48 years old, son. I do not care. You know, I mean, that's, that's how I feel sometimes. He's a sinner, right? He's broken. He pushes back sometimes. Not really a whole lot, but sometimes. Now, there's some pride in me. There's some arrogance in me that says, you better respect me, boy. I get all that, and sometimes that's misappropriated. But at the end of the day, God has given me a position in his life, and he a position in mine where I have authority over him, and he needs to respect the office. And if he pushes that, I don't like it. Who is he to say to me, Dad, don't do this, or Dad, you're wrong in this? Are you kidding me? And we're both sinners. So he has far more right to challenge me than we would ever have to challenge God Almighty. God, the sovereign of the universe, lays out his plans for man, who rebelled against him, by the way, and we dare to push back or question him. Judah is a harlot. Judah 
commits adultery upon adultery, spiritually, against Yahweh, offending his holiness over and over and over again. Read about Manasseh. You want to know kind of where all this comes from? Read about Manasseh, who was appointed the king of Judah at 12 years old and reigned for 55 years. And a lot of this stuff happened under Manasseh as he led Israel, and they just bought it, hook, line, and sinker. So Manasseh starts making these shrines or these altars and idols to Baal and worshiping these things. He takes his child through the fire. I mean, Manasseh is just a horrible, horrible human being. A vessel of wrath prepared for destruction, if I've ever heard of one. And that just scratches the surface of what Israel is guilty of. But Habakkuk just has to trust God. He just has to step away and say, okay. I just have to trust who you are, even though I don't understand how everything reconciles. You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to the dragnet, for by them he lives in luxury. Let me summarize this for you for time's sake. When he says you make mankind like the fish of the sea, he's speaking of Judah. He's saying you've made them helpless. Because when a net or a dragnet was cast, and the difference is a net was typically small. A dragnet was something that was very large to, to bring in large quantities of fish. He's saying, you cast the net, the dragnet. You've made them like fish. They have no ruler. They're by themselves. They're helpless. And Babylon just keeps reeling them in and doing whatever Babylon desires to do with them. And, 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 and Habakkuk watches this happen to Judah time and time again. He says, how long will you be merciless? Or how long will you allow, sorry, this merciless killing to take place? So Judah is helpless. Again, the imagery here is that a fish helplessly caught in a net. There's nothing Judah can do to help themselves. They can do nothing. I think one of the lessons here is that the only one who can save you from God is God himself. And all this has come upon them because of their own idolatry. Listen, the author of Hebrews makes it very clear. He says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And you're catching just a glimpse of what this looks like as it's brought to pass. God's chosen people are in the hands of an angry God. I mean, I love the idea that I'm in the hands of God, that I'm being kept and cared for, but it scares me to death to think that God's indignation could be pointed towards me, even as his child, for reproof and rebuke and discipline. I think for some Christians, they believe that the fear of the Lord belongs to those under the wrath of God, which is not true. That is true, but it's not exclusive to those who are not in Christ. The fear of the Lord belongs to all of us. Matter of fact, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, according to the Scriptures. We're called to be wise, and we do so by having a fear of the Lord. There is sin for the believer that gets dealt with at the cross, but this by no means removes us from, the God, from God's crosshairs if we sin against Him. And let me just clarify that, and we'll move on, because this is an important point to make. Someone might say, well, but Jesus paid for sins of all those who would believe. So all these Christians, why would God have any kind of 
judgment or vindication or, or why would there any be anything against us? I mean, Jesus has paid for it. It was poured out on the cross. Is that redundant for Christ to pay for my sins and then me to pay for my sins? No, it's not. First of all, step out of the logic box and get into the nature of God box and say, okay, what happened on Christ removed the condemnation of my sin. But that does not mean that I will not still face earthly consequences. Let me give you one example, and this is a hard pill for a lot of people to swallow, but I use it for that purpose. King David, a man after God's own heart, not a Christian because he didn't call on the name Jesus Christ, but a follower of God and still rescued by the blood of Christ. That had not happened yet, but that's a prophetic perfect, all that fun stuff. We can talk about that some other time, but still, it's always been by Christ. It's always been through his blood, future or past, that we come to the knowledge of God, and that we're saved. I say we're saved. And Jesus atones for sins. For those who believe, they don't suffer the eternal consequences of those sins. King David, follower of God, man after God's own heart, sinned with Bathsheba, has Uriah the Hittite killed, right? He impregnates Bathsheba. Bathsheba has the baby. And then what does God do? God kills the baby. That's what the text says. God kills the baby. And how do you reconcile that? Sometimes our sins have earthly consequences. And God does it for reproof. He does it for rebuke. He does it for your good. He does it out of love. And that's what's happening to Judah. In climactic desperation, Habakkuk poses one final question for the Lord of hosts. One final question. Is he then, verse 17, to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? Habakkuk is begging God for a rationale. I know that it's hard to feel the emotion that Habakkuk feels. We went through that just a minute ago. Do you ever ask God for a cure of cancer? Do you ever wonder why he's not? Do you ever ask God why he allows this current sexual revolution to mock him? Why doesn't he step in? Why doesn't he intervene? Why doesn't he bring some kind of big calamity, catastrophe? I'm not saying we're wishing people dead. I'm not saying that. I'm saying from God's perspective and his holiness, do we ever wonder why is he silent? Why is he idle right now? This is exactly what Habakkuk's doing. We know the nature of God. We understand this. Habakkuk understands it. We're in the same boat. What, what are you going to do? And when will you do it? So I find great commonplace with Habakkuk in this. Keep in mind that all things exist that are bad because of the fall. If there were no fall, there would be no abortion. If there were no fall, there would be no sexual revolution that twists and distorts God's beautiful design. There would be no need to go to the clinic. There would be no need to go to the strip club. There would be no need to go to parades. There would be no need to do these things and to stand and hold the line. There would be no need for these things. But you know what? There is a need for this. Why? Because there's a Genesis 3 reality. And if you're living in a Genesis 2 world, you're delusional because you're not. You're in a 3 world. So it demands these things. So we see these atrocities all over. So after all this dialogue, after Habakkuk questions God, he then decides that what he can do is wait. And we'll finish with this. 
He asks this question as this great climactic moment, moment for this petitioning time of God. And then he says this in verse, uh, verse 1 of chapter 2. I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. Habakkuk has exhausted everything he wants to say. He's begged God for a rationale. He said, God, this is my struggle. This is my problem. Help me to understand these things. Are you going to let this happen? When will you stop it? What's going on? And rather than sitting there and making assumptions or taking matters into his own hands or becoming a vigilante, he says, I will get on my watch post and I will wait. I think that's a proper Christian response. Let me be very clear, though. I don't mean wait and be passive. Because clearly we have mandates and commands in the scripture that we are to be about gospel kingdom work. But even that is a sense of waiting because we do a work and we wait and trust for God to bring an increase. We wait and we trust on God to bring about change. Habakkuk knew that the only way to proceed was to get the answers from God rather than sitting out on his own assumptions or setting out. One theologian said this, the watchman who waits for God's word stands in vivid contrast with those who resort to their own imaginations. I think we could all take a few plays out of Habakkuk's playbook here. Habakkuk does all that he can do and then he waits. Because there is a certain activity that comes with being on a watch post. This is likened to soldiers during that day who would have a post that they would sit at. They're defending by being on that watch post. So there's an activity. They're not passive. There's an action there. So Habakkuk is not idle. Habakkuk is not passive. Habakkuk is not lazy. He says, you know what? A part of my action is to wait and trust in the sovereign decrees of the Lord. Waiting isn't easy for us. It wasn't easy for Abraham when God said, (laughs) you know, You're an old man, but I'm going to give you a son. He had to wait. David had to wait to become king, all the while having chance to take out Saul, but he would not raise a hand against the Lord's anointed. Naomi had to wait in order that she might find Boaz. So waiting is difficult. We wait on test results because we get nervous about what's happening in our bodies. Many parents experience children who rebel against them, and then God, and they wait in hopes that God would bring them to repentance through his kindness. It's tough to wait. It's tough to wait on those things. Waiting is an expression of faith. It conveys a disposition that trusts in the sovereignty of God. Rather than assume, rather than take matters into our own hands, rather than act on what we feel is best in these situations, we wait for clear direction from God. I think a failure to wait and trust the Lord ends up sometimes as a manufactured will of God. We don't know the will of God clearly. We don't want to wait So we act on our own accord and say, that's the will of God. We have to be careful of that. The application is simple. We have to wait on the Lord. And we learn to let what we know to be true of God, let that determine what we think with regards to the work of God. Very simple. That's the theme of Habakkuk. Trust the sovereignty of God. Wait on the work of God.
because we can trust him to do what is right, what is good, and what is for his glory. Let's pray and we'll be dismissed. Lord, my prayer is that we can take these notes from this exchange between you and Habakkuk. And it's, it's really kind of mind-blowing to me, God, that I sit here and talk to you. And I'm talking to you just as Habakkuk spoke with you so many years ago and is with you now. <laughs> and that's just kind of a neat, mind-boggling thing. But, God, I pray that if I understand this rightly, I pray that I could become like Habakkuk and that I would be content on my watch post. Not being passive, but being active in that regard, doing what I'm supposed to do, being intentional about the gospel, being intentional about what it is to be a light in the midst of darkness. But in that activity, I'm waiting on you to bring about change. I'm waiting on you to bring about what you want to bring about. And Lord, I'm encouraged because it says just in a few verses later that they'll see next week that you speak to Habakkuk and you say, listen, there is an appointed time And it will not be delayed. So God, that tells me that you have something in store for all the things that that brings us pain in this life. You have something in store for all the darkness, for all the grief. And I don't know how that's going to come about. I don't know what you're going to do. I just know that you have something in store that it will not, not be delayed and that it will come at its appointed time. And it will be good and it will be glorious. And Lord, we await that time, but in the meantime, Lord, make us active. Lord, keep our feet in the fire, and whatever that looks like throughout our natural rhythms, as we are watchmen on the wall, make us content with that, longing for the day that you bring about the change that you've appointed. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, you're dismissed.